Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler, Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. First up, on a quick statistical note, regarding all of the scripts I've typed for this podcast in Microsoft Word over the years, I have now topped 1,000 pages and 600,000 words. For the sake of comparison, that's about 20,000 more words than the entire Lord of the Rings book trilogy, plus The Hobbits, put together. So yes, I could have put all that energy toward creating the next great American novel, or doing something else more worthwhile, but no, instead, I do a podcast about that time when there was more naughty language in wrestling. Clearly, I need to reevaluate my priorities. But in the meantime, I hope you keep enjoying the show, so with that being said... Let's get into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, April 12th, 1999, and we are live from Joe Lewis Arena in Detroit, Michigan. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include 14 episodes of Raw, including the post-breakdown episode in September when Stone Cold Steve Austin drove a Zamboni into the arena, 13 episodes of SmackDown, and a handful of pay-per-views, including the 2009 Royal Rumble, two separate Halloween Havocs 1994 and 1995, and three separate Survivor Series 1991, 1999, and 2005. Also, prior to the arena being shut down, the last ever event to be held there was a WWE Live event in July of 2017, so clearly there's a lot of history in this building. We open the show with a recap of what happened on Raw last week, And in case you need a reminder, Vince McMahon was preoccupied with protecting his daughter Stephanie, so he let his son Shane run the show. Shane taunted Stone Cold Steve Austin by putting a picture of his stolen smoking skull belt on the Titantron, which resulted in Stone Cold and the Big Show destroying the Titantron. And to make things even more difficult on Vince, The Undertaker hinted that he would sacrifice Stephanie, but instead he sacrificed Ryan Shamrock, by putting her on his symbol and hanging her above the entrance ramp. Not good times for the chairman. From there, we go live backstage, where Vince is in an office with Stephanie, and there are four police officers with them. Vince assures his daughter that she'll be fine tonight, and we then kick into the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include Shane, Daddy's Little Bitch, Undertaker, Sacrifice Me, Bring Back Coco Beware, DX Needs Jericho, that would have been interesting, Nice Cans Biatch, and I Can't Spell with the word can't beginning with a K and only one L in the word spell. Really steering into those wrestling fan stereotypes, aren't they? 
And after the pyro and the crowd scanning, I can't help but notice that a familiar voice is welcoming us to the show. The show is sold out here in Detroit. And you got to wonder, what will Shane McMahon's major announcement be here tonight? Hi everybody, I'm Jim Ross alongside the King, Jerry Lawler. And King, what a night for the fans to be with us here on Raw. <laughs> it's going to be big! Yes, that's right. After more than four months away from the commentary table, Jim Ross has returned to his usual spot alongside Jerry the King Lawler. No more heel turn, no more Dr. Death by his side, just good old JR sitting at ringside, the way it should be. Fucking finally. And my condolences to all of you Michael Cole fans out there, but let's just say he ends up doing just fine for himself. He'll be alright. So we officially kick off the show with the entire corporation, except for Vince and Stephanie, walking down the ramp. And yes, as has been the custom over the past few weeks, The Rock is indeed still carrying around Steve Austin's smoking skull belt. And by the way, when the corporation emerges from backstage, we can see that the new Titantron does indeed look slightly different, because it has the WWF.com logo hanging above the entrance with the phrase, Download This on it. Other than that, it looks pretty much the same, but it's nice to see the WWF is finally making an effort to navigate you to their website in 1999. Took them long enough. But anyway, as you heard Jim Ross say in that clip I played, Shane McMahon apparently has a big announcement to make, so perhaps he'll be doing that right now. However, the first thing Shane does is introduce us to Rodney and Pete Gass, two members of the Mean Street Posse, who are apparently now also members of the corporation as well. As if the group needed to get any larger. But after he does that, Shane immediately gets confronted by Ken Shamrock. He says the corporation is supposed to be a family, but where were they last week when his sister got sacrificed by The Undertaker? Shane tries to calm him down by saying that they're in the same boat, because Taker is also after his sister, and with that in mind, Shane then asks Vince and Stephanie to come down to the ring. When we cut backstage, we see that Vince is not a fan of the idea, since it would potentially put Stephanie in harm's way, but Stephanie trusts Shane because she knows he has her best interests at heart. And so, yes, Vince and Stephanie then do indeed walk to the ring, accompanied by the four Detroit police officers. So let's pick things up from there. I don't know what this is about, but it better be damn good. What is this, some sort of publicity stunt you're up to? You put your sister in harm's way by asking her to come out here? This better be damn good. What are you up to, Shane? What am I up to? Maybe you're asking me what my priorities are? Dead. Priorities. Let's talk about priorities for a second, because yours are out of whack. Where are your priorities? The only priority you have is you focused your whole world around Stephanie, daddy's little girl. That's all you continue to focus on. Daddy's little girl. That's all you care about. You said you don't give a damn about the corporation. No. Let's talk about priorities yet again. Let's check this out. Look at Jim Ross down here, returns to Raw. Jim Ross, the guy can barely 
speak and you're putting them out here? You know what, Jim? I'd fire you right here on the spot if I got another problem because your cohort, Michael Cole, sucks just as bad. Uh, aren't you, uh, aren't you getting just a little bit out of line? I, I don't think I'm getting out of line at all. You know what? Talking about someone's getting fired here tonight, matter of fact, and it's about 30 years in the making. I have no room in the new corporation. Check out the youth. Check out the exuberance. Check that out one time. There's no room for the geriatric. There's no room in the corporation for the old. The only room in the corporation... Let me tell you one thing. You can take loyalty, as you so call it, and flush it down the toilet. Because there is no room in my corporation for either of you two, Pat and Jerry. Read my lips. You are both fired. What? What? Oh, oh. Hey, what, what word didn't you understand? You are both fired. Now take it to the back, or I'll have some of the corporation members bring it down there for you. Let's go. What's he doing, JR? Like him or not, that's not right. He guessed. To the back. Your services are no longer needed. Goodbye. How humiliating. So let me get this straight now. I've got it. You're on some sort of power trip. Is that it, Shane? That brings me to a great point. Matter of fact, the whole point. Where is your power, Dad? Where is your power trip? Where is the Vince McMahon that we all know? Where is the most ruthless human being to ever walk the planet? You always taught me, hey, climb over everybody. It doesn't matter because you're climbing that ladder and you're never coming down. Do anything at all costs to get ahead in this world. Dad, where are the balls the size of grapefruits? That's what I want to know. Oh. Oh, I'm still the same man. And then some. It's just that I do have my priorities straight. And right now, my priority is simply your sister, my daughter's welfare. I'm going to take Stephanie and go home. Here you go. Oh, I'm not. Hey, hey, I'm not done talking to you. I'm not done talking to you yet. Uh-oh. What do you think you are? Easy now. Let me tell you something. This power trip you're on, if you want true power, you have to earn it. And you have to earn it with respect. Respect this. Oh my God. This is horrendous. I can't believe it. Vince is walking away. Precious daughter, 
little girl. That's it. Tuck your tail between your legs and get it to the back and go home. Go ahead. Oh, you know what? Hey, you're not my father anymore. Oh, come on, Shane. That's your dad. That's right, dad. You're not my father. You're not my dad anymore. Matter of fact, you're not even Mr. McMahon to me anymore. You have not my respect. You are simply known from now on as Vince. Man, this is shocking. Shamrock is... I think Shamrock's too pleased with the proceedings, King. I am in shock. Oh, look at this. Whoa. Well, Shamrock is showing his loyalty. Where are you going, Shamrock? And Mr. McMahon. Hey, Kenny. Hey, Kenny. Is this the way you want it? You want to walk out on me and the corporation? So, yes, as you heard there, Shane appears to be making a power play, first by firing Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe, and then by taking over the corporation from Vince, culminating with a slap to his father's face. Vince and Stephanie then head off backstage together, accompanied by the police officers, while the rest of the corporation remains in the ring, seemingly staying loyal to Shane. Well, that is, all of them except for Ken Shamrock. He proceeds to flip off Shane and walk back up the ramp as well, apparently establishing his loyalty to Shane's father. Remember that Vince personally asked for Shamrock to get Stephanie back when she was abducted by the Ministry a few weeks ago, and the chairman said he would always be in Shamrock's debt for it. And so, it seems that the world's most dangerous man is siding with Vince McMahon in this ongoing power struggle. But clearly, the big story here is that Shane has taken power away from Vince at a time when Mr. McMahon is seemingly at his most vulnerable. And after commercial break, we cut backstage where Vince, Stephanie, Shamrock, Patterson, and Briscoe are exiting the arena, flanked by the four cops. Vince then takes Shamrock's hand and thanks him for his loyalty, and Shamrock then heads back into the arena while Vince, Stephanie, and the Stooges get into a limousine and head out. We then cut elsewhere backstage where Shane is with the remaining corporation members and he tells The Rock that the cameras are in place and Rock says to him that he's going to go out for a little bit of fresh air, so perhaps we'll see what that's all about a little later on. From there, we go back inside the arena for our first match of the evening and it is a four corners match for the WWF Women's Championship, Champion Sable, accompanied by Nicole Bass, versus Tori, versus Ivory, versus Jacqueline, who's accompanied by Terry Runnels. Well, this should certainly be an interesting match involving four... Oh, wait, never mind, the match never happens. Why? Because Nicole Bass chokeslams Jackie, then slams Tori, and then chokeslams Ivory before we can even get underway. And yes, as you might expect, Nicole's offense looks pretty rough. But apparently, all three of Sable's opponents taking one move apiece is too devastating to allow them to compete, so the match gets waved off entirely. All right, then. So Sable and Nicole Bass start walking backstage, but then, for the third week in a row, the lights go out and The Undertaker interrupts a women's segment. 
This time, however, he's not in the arena with them, but rather he's shown on the Titantron, and he has a message for Vince McMahon. Whatever ain't nailed down, you can run and you can hide, but you know it's only a matter of time that your precious daughter Stephanie, she will be mine. It is her destiny. But tonight, McMahon, in Stephanie's absence, another innocent victim will be sacrificed before the Lord of Darkness. And you know, McMahon, there's only one person to blame, only one person to be held responsible. And that is you. Well, there you have it. The Undertaker is planning on sacrificing another innocent victim here tonight. And by the way, when he says that, as you could hear in that clip, it gets a pretty good-sized pop. The Detroit crowd clearly wants to see a quasi-crucifixion, and really, who can blame them? It is pretty awesome. So who will tonight's victim be? I guess we'll have to stay tuned to find out. And after a commercial break, your WWF champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin, is heading to the ring to a huge crowd reaction, as always. And interestingly, Austin is carrying the usual WWF championship belt, the big circular one, even though he relinquished it to Vince McMahon on the episode of Raw after WrestleMania. I guess maybe Vince gave it back to him? Sure, why not? So Stone Cold starts talking about his match with The Rock at Backlash, where Shane McMahon will be the special guest referee, and from there, well, take a listen to what happens during Stone Cold's promo. If you're ready for Backlash, give me a hell yeah! You're damn right, I see The Rock went and got himself a breath of fresh air, but I tell you this, Rock... You better get a bunch of breath, a bunch of damn fresh air, because if you thought WrestleMania was something, you've got another thing coming, because there ain't no way the Stone Cold Steve Austin is going to go into backlash and not come back with that belt. As far as Shane McMahon, the special referee goes, you can come out here in the middle of this ring and run down Vince like the jackass that he is. Uh-oh. You can slap him in the face because I really don't give a damn how you treat Vince. I will say this. You better roll in that match as a special referee, and you will kill one, two, one, two three, and you will not treat Stone Cold Steve Austin like Vince McMahon because if you do, I will beat your ass like the sorry son of a bitch that you are. He is intense. He means every word he says. With Backlash being two weeks away, I will go in that match and I will get back that belt. But the way I look at it, two weeks is just too damn long for Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh-oh. I don't like the sound of that. So the situation is really quite simple. Rock, either get that damn belt bring it in this ring and hand it over to Stone Cold Steve Austin or I will come back here and drag your nursery rhyme singing Rudy Pooh Candy Ass. It's Austin's personal property, that belt. 
I will drag your Rudy Pooh candy ass out here and wipe this whole damn arena with your stinking ass. Hey, hey, redneck, piece of trash. Exactly. It's the great one, The Rock, the people's champ. Does this look familiar to you, Austin? Does it? It's your piece of trash title. It's the bridge. There's the water, and it's a long way down. But uh-uh, The Rock, he's not going to throw it over the bridge like you did The Rock's Intercontinental title about a year and a half ago. No, 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 no. The Rock's an opportunist. As a matter of fact, he's such an opportunist that he wants you to find The Rock. You come on this bridge. You come and get this piece of trash. You call a belt. You're such a big game hunter. Well, I'll tell you what, Stone Cold. You go ahead and you come and hunt the greatest species, biggest, baddest species, walking God's green earth in the Brahma Bull himself. So The Rock is up here, Stone Cold. You want it, you come and get it. The Rock isn't going to tell you where he's at. Uh-uh. The Rock is up here on the Rudy Pooh. Hey, don't do it. Don't do it. The Rock is up here on the Rudy Pooh Bridge. It's on the corner of the People's Champ Boulevard and Candy Ass Lane. Stone Cold, you want the piece of trash? You come get the piece of trash. Whoa! You stand up there and you call yourself a super species. As far as I'm concerned, you are the super feces. Oh! And you might want to watch your damn balance because I ain't so sure that feces floats. That belt is coming back with Stone Cold Steve Austin tonight, and that's the bottom line. Cause Stone Cold sucks. Yes, that's right. When Stone Cold is cutting his promo, he gets interrupted on the Titantron by The Rock, who is holding Austin's smoking skull belt. And as you heard Rock say in that clip there, he isn't going to throw the belt over the bridge and into the water below like Stone Cold did to his intercontinental title. In fact, he's inviting Austin to come meet him on the bridge and take the belt from him. Now, in case you aren't familiar with what Rock was referencing there, back on the December 15, 1997 episode of Raw, Stone Cold essentially forfeited the intercontinental title by taking the belt, going to a bridge somewhere in, of all places, Durham, New Hampshire, shout out to Nitromania host Adam, and chucking the belt into a river. Fun fact, by the way, the very next segment after Austin threw the belt off the bridge, a pre-taped promo from Vince McMahon, where he gave his infamous speech introducing the Attitude Era. How fitting. But anyway, back to tonight. Stone Cold has vowed to find The Rock and take his smoking skull belt back, so I suppose we'll see how that ends up playing out. And from there, we then cut backstage where Mankind enters the arena holding a garbage bag, He asks an attendant where the boiler room is, and, because Detroit's nickname of Hockey Town is displayed on the wall, he asks the attendant if the Red Wings play here. And then, as he's walking away, Foley continues with the hockey theme and says, I used to play tonsil hockey with Al Snow. Not sure what to do with that one, so I'll just leave it there. And when we come back from commercial, Michael Cole was now standing outside of the boiler room, so yes, this is what they have him doing now instead of calling the matches. Apparently, last night on Sunday Night Heat, Mick Foley vowed to stay in a boiler room for two straight weeks in order to protect the big show from him prior to their boiler room brawl match at Backlash. Now, this confuses me quite a bit, because tonight's show is taking place in Detroit, while Backlash will be taking place in 
Providence, Rhode Island, so how does that make sense? Is Mankind going to stay in this boiler room for two weeks, or is he going to go from boiler room to boiler room in arenas around the country until Backlash rolls around? I feel like I need more of an explanation here. Also, they just turned the big show face, so why is he scheduled to face Super Babyface Mankind at the pay-per-view? Very bizarre booking here. But speaking of the big show, we then go into the arena, where it is now time for our actual first match of the evening, since that women's match never happened. The Big Show versus Christian, who is accompanied by Gangrel and Edge. And for the record, I checked some old recap websites, and this match began at 9.42 p.m. Eastern Time. So yes, we got our first match 42 minutes into the show. Although, for the sake of comparison, on the recent May 27th, 2019 episode of Raw, it took them 50 minutes before we got our first match. The more things change, the more they stay the same, eh? So anyway, remember how I said that Gangrel and Edge accompanied Christian to the ring? Well, maybe I should say that Gangrel and Edge temporarily accompanied Christian to the ring, because right before the match is about to begin, we heard a familiar voice over the loudspeaker. Big Show waiting somewhat patiently. He certainly doesn't care. Edge, Gangrel, leave. And leave now. Tonight, Christian must prove his worth to the ministry. But more importantly, he must prove his worth to me. Edge, Gangrel, there is nothing to think about. You leave, or tonight, you will be the ones having to pay penance. So there you go, The Undertaker is ordering Christian to prove himself tonight, and so Gangrel and Edge head off backstage. And by the way, if you listen closely when Taker is speaking in that clip, you can hear an angry fan repeatedly yelling, fuck you at him, so clearly not a big fan of the dead man. So anyway, how does Christian fare against the big show? Well, you can probably guess. Show ends up squashing him in about a minute, culminating with one of those impressive-looking choke slams where Paul White drops to the ground when he delivers it. Good stuff. Your winner in dominant fashion, The Big Show, who is once again victorious in the exact same arena where he won the WCW World Heavyweight Championship in 1995. As for Christian, presumably this performance did not go a long way toward endearing him to The Undertaker. But, well, more on that later. And from there, we cut backstage where Michael Cole is with Mankind. Foley claims that he will send the Big Show out of the boiler room on a big stretcher at Backlash, so that's something. But then, we quickly cut to one of the dressing rooms where Shane McMahon is with Rodney and Pete Gass. Apparently not impressed with Mankind, Shane tells the two Mean Street Posse members to go down to the boiler room and beat Foley's ass. I'm not really sure why, since Mankind and Shane haven't been feuding lately, but let's just go with it. So after a commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, Badass Billy Gunn versus Val Venus. Val, by the way, comes out wearing a purple towel this week, as opposed to his usual white one. Not sure if that becomes a recurring thing, but it was kind of weird to see. As for the match itself, they only got about three and a half minutes, but this was a really nice match for the duration they were given. Billy and Val are both solid workers, so no complaints from me here. The finish of the match came when Billy charged at Val, but Val grabbed the top rope, which caused Mr. Ass to fall to the floor. 
And from there, your former WWF Tag Team Champions Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart ran out from backstage and started putting the boots to Billy Gunn in full view of referee Jimmy Corderas, which resulted in a disqualification. Your winner of the match, Badass Billy Gunn. So with Jeff and Owen putting the boots to Billy, the road dog then emerged from backstage to back up his partner. And surprisingly, Val Venus also started beating on Jeff and Owen, seemingly unhappy about the fact that they caused him to get disqualified. And once the three of them dispatched Jeff and Owen, Val and the outlaws then entered the ring where Deborah was now standing. Val stared her down and started doing his patented gyrations, and at this point, something rather interesting happened. While Val is gyrating in Deborah's face, Road Dog climbs to one of the turnbuckles where we can see him pointing to Val, then putting his arms in the air and forming an X with them in a clear sign that he is asking the crowd if Val should join Degeneration X. I had zero recollection of this whatsoever, but Road Dog was clearly suggesting that Val should join the group. I don't think they ever follow up on this, but I have to say that it certainly would have made sense. So anyway, Val is gyrating in Deborah's face, and it looks like she's into it, until Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart motion for her to come with them, so she exits the ring and walks off backstage with her team. And on commentary, Jim Ross is playing this up as though Deborah appears to be smitten with the big Valboski, so not only are we teasing Val joining DX, but we're also teasing him trying to bang Deborah. And frankly, either of those moments would have been nice for Val, but I'm pretty sure we don't get either one. Stay tuned in the coming weeks, though, I suppose. So after a commercial break, Rodney and Pete Gass have now entered the boiler room, and, as you might expect, Mankind proceeds to kick both of their asses, then toss them right back out the door. Honestly, I'm not really sure how else they possibly expected that to go, but there you have it. And then, strangely, when Mankind is left alone in the boiler room, we can hear what appears to be the sounds of someone off-camera whimpering, but they just cut away before we can find out who it is. Okay, then. So from there, we head back into the arena for our next match, the Acolytes versus Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart, accompanied by Deborah. And honestly, why did Jeff, Owen, and Deborah even bother leaving ringside anyway? I mean, they were just there during that last segment, but then they had to go backstage and come right back out, which seems like a horrendous waste of time. And once again, we get a pretty short match here, which is probably the right call since this is a friggin' heel versus heel tag team match. After only about a minute and a half, well, I'll just play for you what happens next. And Farouk in there, hammering away at, at Jeff Jarrett, tag team titles on, and wait a minute, there's all, here comes a brood, here comes a ministry. Uh-oh, it's Nick, I'm coming. 
Jeff and Owen can't do anything. Deborah, Deborah. Beautiful Deborah. You have to understand, this is not my fault. You see, McMahon has left me no other choice. He left with Stephanie. Come on. Tonight, she was to be my prize, my trophy. And now, you are going to have to do. You see, McMahon, how many of the innocent will have to suffer? How many souls will I have to take before she's mine? This is not right. Hey, look, there's Shamrock. Kim Shamrock's got a ball bat. Uh-oh, Shamrock's got a baseball bat. And the Undertaker is standing his ground. Shamrock with a ball bat. That's the world's most dangerous man with a weapon now. Shamrock, if you hit me, you'll never see Ryan again. That's Shamrock's sister. The boiler room. Ryan's in the boiler room. What? You're the Joe? And from what Viscera told me, she's enjoyed everything that's happened to her. Undertaker is doing just what he chastised Christian for. Okay, so what you heard there was the Ministry of Darkness running into the ring and attacking Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart, clearly resulting in a disqualification. But of course, this is the Attitude Era, and the matches are always secondary, so let's get into what happened next. The Undertaker and Paul Bearer then emerged from backstage, and, just like he did to Sable a few weeks ago on Raw, Taker grabs Deborah by the throat and proceeds to start choking her as punishment for Vince McMahon removing Stephanie from the arena. And by the way, there are times when Deborah is quite clearly trying to stifle her laughter here. I would call that corpsing, but that's probably a little too on the nose when it comes to an Undertaker segment. But anyway, eventually Ken Shamrock runs out from backstage with a baseball bat, which causes the entire ring to clear, except for the Undertaker. And as you heard in that clip, Taker told Shamrock that he would never see Ryan again if he hit him with the bat, so, uh, I guess the Ministry kidnapped her after they put her on the symbol last week? I assumed they had just let her go, but no, apparently she's been abducted for the past seven days. Good to know. So Taker says that Ryan is in the boiler room, and presumably we now know that she was the one who was whimpering during that Mankind segment. But then... Taker has to get in one more dig by saying, quote, From what Viscera told me, she's enjoying everything that's happened to her. So that would be a reference to Viscera raping Ryan Shamrock, correct? I mean, I'm pretty sure that's what we're hinting at there, folks. And uh, yeah, good lord. 
insert your own world's largest love machine joke here. So yes, that line causes Shamrock to lose his shit, but before he can hit Taker with the baseball bat, some other ministry members run back into the ring to interfere. Shamrock then takes out four of them with the bat, not swinging it, of course, because that would probably kill them, but rather he hits them with the butt end of it and jabs it into their stomachs. From there, Shamrock then ran off backstage, presumably to the boiler room. And when he did, we heard that ominous warning from The Undertaker at the end of that clip there, when he said, Be very careful and laughed evilly as though he was a host at one of those haunted fun houses that pop up around Halloween time. And to further muddy the waters here, Jerry Lawler on commentary suggests that The Undertaker gave up Ryan's whereabouts a little too easily, so I guess we'll see what happens there. And after a commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, and it is for the WWF Intercontinental Championship, Champion Goldust versus Challenger The Big Boss Man, who, I repeat, was hung from the ceiling by his neck two weeks ago and is now totally fine. And speaking of boss man, for those scoring at home, this is the first time he's contended for the Intercontinental title in eight years, the last time being at WrestleMania 7 when he defeated Mr. Perfect via disqualification but did not win the belt. Fun fact for you there. And by the way, you'll note that I said that Goldust came to the ring by himself. The Blue Meanie was not with him, despite their recent partnership over the past several weeks. Well, the reason for that is because the Meanie was fired this week. I'm actually going to dive into this a little bit more in the next episode of this podcast, but let's just say that the saga of the Blue Meanie takes an interesting turn. But that's for another time, so let's get back to Goldust versus the Big Boss Man. However, before that match can begin, we get an interruption by the Godfather, who is accompanied by five hoes. And by the way, Godfather has been inviting the fans to come aboard the hoe train for a few weeks now, but this is the first time when he's had more than two or three hoes with him, so that train is indeed finally getting longer. In case you need a reminder, last week on Raw, the Godfather faced Goldust for the Intercontinental title, but it ended in a double countout, so Goldust retained his belt. With that in mind... Let's take a listen to what the Godfather has to say. Hey, boss man, hold up now, hold up. This ain't no trick. You better back up. <laughs> now listen, I wrestled this chump last week on Monday Night Raw, and there was nothing ever settled. So I have a deal of a lifetime for you. Ah, uh, here we go. If you back, oh, hang on now. If you back out of this match with this chump and let me wrestle him, huh? you have your choice of any one of these fine homes. Wait a minute now. You're talking to the big boss man. He usually uh, incarcerates hoes, I think. He's no degenerate. If you don't want him, we got some hockey players here from the Detroit Red Wings. Matt Domino and Darren McCarty. They'll take the hose. I know, and all these people know, that they'll take the hose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Go on, take a look at him. That'd be the hat trick. Oh. Oh, that'd be the hoe trick. Oh, wait a minute. And you know what? They know what to do with that nightstick. Uh-oh. Well... I think that got boss man's attention. No. Two. Not three. Not four. Oh. Bo 
I want him so bad. You got all five of them for the whole night. Well, apparently then, uh, what a whole train is it going to be for Boss Man? We got a change in the lineup Go here. Ahead and take him, man. Look at this. Well, there you have it. The big boss man has indeed decided to pass up a shot at the Intercontinental title in favor of spending the night with five hoes. And honestly, I suppose you can't really blame him for that one. We'd probably all do the same thing. And if you'll indulge me for just a moment here, I'd actually like to heap some praise on the Godfather character. Now hear me out. I know that the Godfather tends to be remembered as just a one-dimensional pimp gimmick, but I think this segment is a good representation of how they can use the character to have some more entertaining moments other than just, check out all those women. For starters, he uses the hoe train to get someone else to give up his position so he can get a title shot without having to earn it. Pretty good strategy. And also, when Godfather was cutting that promo, I thought he legitimately had some funny lines, like how the hoes know what to do with Bossman's nightstick. And, perhaps more amusingly, when he completely throws some of the Detroit Red Wings players under the bus by saying that they'd take the hose if Bossman didn't want them. Remember, Detroit's nickname is Hockey Town because they love the Red Wings so much, and Godfather is just flat out saying, you know those hockey players you root for? They love sleazy, sleazy prostitutes. Just struck me as funny for some reason. So anyway, yes, I will indeed praise the Godfather for taking this pimp character and maybe having some fun with it beyond just the surface level. Am I being too generous here? Probably, but screw you, it's my podcast. So anyway, back to the title match here. It will now be WWF Intercontinental Champion Goldust versus your new challenger, the Godfather. And early on in the match, we get a very amusing chant from the crowd of Nitro sucks. I'm not sure what inspired them to chant that. Maybe some fan in the crowd was rocking WCW gear and they wanted to put him in his place. Who knows? In fairness, though, by most accounts, the opposing episode of Nitro tonight was actually pretty good, but I suppose we'll get to that a little bit later on. As for Goldust versus The Godfather, boy oh boy, these guys do not have good in-ring chemistry together. Early on in the match, it looked like Godfather was attempting to backdrop Goldust, but Goldust couldn't get enough of a rotation, so instead he adjusted and landed chest-first on the mat. And then, a few seconds later, Goldust tried to pick up Godfather for a back suplex, but he could barely lift him off the ground, so it looked incredibly awkward. I think this is the type of match that the returning Jim Ross would usually refer to as bowling shoe ugly. Eventually, the finish comes when Goldust low bridges the Godfather, taking him down to the arena floor, and then, while referee Jimmy Corderas is counting, Goldust removes one of the turnbuckle pads behind his back. And when the Godfather re-enters the ring, well, let's pick it up from there. And what about the WWF tag titles on the line tonight? Oh, Very emotional situation for X-Pac, he and Kane champions. Oh, look out here. I guess Triple H and Tess. of the Death Valley Driver. And the Godfather wins it. The Godfather. The new Intercontinental Champion. Here's the winner and the new World Wrestling Federation Intercontinental Champion. What does that make the host? The title is up for grabs. And it's official. We have a new 
So, yes, when Goldust removes the turnbuckle pad, that proves to be his own undoing, because when he attempts to throw the Godfather into the exposed buckle, he reverses it and throws Goldust into it instead. From there, Godfather picked up Goldust and hit him with a Death Valley driver, he went for the cover, and yes, he scored the one, the two, and the three. Your winner, and the new WWF Intercontinental Champion, The Godfather. For those scoring at home, Charles Wright has been with the WWF off and on for over seven years at this point, and this would be the first title he has ever held in the company. So good for him. Good for him. Also, I have a few more notes here. Number one, as soon as the Godfather wins, the five hoes emerge from backstage to celebrate with him. So as you heard Jerry Lawler say on commentary there, clearly the boss man must work pretty quickly. Number two, how fitting that the Godfather wins the belt on episode number 69 of this podcast. The cheap joke, sure, but you were probably all thinking it. Number three, Goldust's third and final reign with the Intercontinental title lasted for a whopping 14 days, which is pretty underwhelming. If you flash back to two weeks ago on Raw when he won the belt, he cut a promo saying that he now knows who he is, and soon all of us will know too... And then he loses the belt in practically no time at all. So what was the point of even having him cut that promo if you're just going to have him lose the belt so soon anyway? It's almost like Vince Russo was bad with long-term planning or something. And number four, I wanted to enjoy this Godfather title victory, but then I remembered that the Godfather is the Intercontinental Champion when a certain pay-per-view match is supposed to take place, and that just bummed me out. Yes, we're getting closer and closer to... That show, folks. I suppose we'll deal with that when we come to it. So anyway, congrats to The Godfather on his first and, spoiler, only reign with a singles title in the WWF. And from there, we cut backstage, where Ken Shamrock has now entered the boiler room, and sure enough, Mankind then proceeds to flag him down and say that Ryan is with him. Ken embraces his sister, but then, off-camera, we hear what sounds like clanging pipes, and so, we cut to commercial. Okay, then. And amusingly, on the WWE Network, they leave in a commercial for their CD of entrance themes, WWF The Music Volume 3, and the ad essentially brags about the fact that the album has already gone platinum, and it's, quote, the best-selling sports entertainment album ever. That's how hot the WWF was at this point in time, folks. They could put out an album of wrestlers' entrance themes, and the fucking thing sold more than a million units in less than four months. Unreal. So anyway, when we return from break, we cut back to the boiler room where the entire Ministry of Darkness is now beating the crap out of Ken Shamrock and Mankind. And much like what was mentioned several times on last week's episode of Raw, Jim Ross tells us, quote, The Undertaker's television persona has come to life. Don't ever forget, folks, The Undertaker is a fake character. Christ. Eventually, Paul Bearer pulls out a rag and soaks it with chloroform, and he puts it over Ken Shamrock's face, rendering him unconscious. The Ministry then carries Shamrock away, but not before the Undertaker grabs Ryan by her hair and tells her that everything that happens to Ken tonight will be her fault. Oh, and for good measure, he also calls her a little slut. Yeesh. So the Ministry walks off, leaving Ryan on the floor of the boiler room, And we don't actually know what happens to Mankind. Presumably they left him in there too, but the rest of his beating kind of happens off-camera, so maybe he just got up and left? Who knows? And after a commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, and it is for the WWF Hardcore Championship. 
champion Hardcore Holly versus challenger D'Lo Brown, who was accompanied by Ivory. And as an added uh, treat, Al Snow and Head are joining the commentary team for this match. And once again, Al informs them that no one is allowed to beat Holly for the Hardcore title except for him, so he's out at ringside to, quote, protect my investment. All right then. So just a few seconds into the match, Holly and D'Lo head out to the floor, where Holly then reaches under the ring and pulls out a hockey stick. He rears back to hit D'Lo with it, but before he can, one of the prostitute-loving Detroit Red Wings hockey players sitting in the front row grabs the stick and pulls it away from him. This then causes Holly to jump the barricade and shove both Red Wings players until D'Lo grabs him and pulls him back over. And when he does that, the Red Wings then hand the hockey stick back to D'Lo, so that was nice of them. And as you might expect, D'Lo then breaks the stick over the back of Hardcore Hockey, or, I mean, Hardcore Holly. And by the way, just in case you're an NHL fan and you're wondering who the players were, I went ahead and looked this up, and apparently they were Darren McCarty and Mathieu Dandineau, so now you know. Also, uh, apologies for butchering that French pronunciation. Continuing on, with D'Lo getting the better of Holly, Al Snow attempted to make good on his promise of protecting his investment by handing a glass full of Kool-Aid to Holly, he smashed it into D'Lo's head, and referee Mike Kyoto made the count, but it was only good enough for two. Eventually, Holly rolled outside, picked up a table, and set it up in the ring, but D'Lo turned the tide and positioned Holly on the table. D'Lo then went to the top rope to hit Holly with a frog splash, but again, Al Snow interfered in Holly's favor by pulling D'Lo down from the top rope. Al Snow then entered the ring, but D'Lo managed to take out both Snow and Holly with chair shots, and once again, he positioned Hardcore Holly on the table so he could go for the frog splash. Unfortunately for D'Lo, when he jumped off the top rope, Al Snow managed to pull Holly off the table just in time, so D'Lo ended up frog splashing himself through the table. It was actually a pretty well-timed spot, and it even gave Jim Ross the opportunity to bust out one of his most famous analogies. Good lord, it sounded like a car wreck! And from there, all Holly had to do was cover D'Lo, and he picked up the one, the two, and the three. Your winner and still WWF Hardcore Champion, Hardcore Holly. And so, much like those members of the Detroit Red Wings in 1999, D'Lo Brown fails to win the championship. From there, we cut backstage where The Undertaker is talking to a still unconscious Ken Shamrock as the rest of the ministry looks on. He tells Shamrock that people think he's lost touch with reality, but the reality for him is that tonight, Shamrock will become one with the ministry. But before that can happen, he must suffer through unimaginable pain, so presumably Taker is going to have him watch one of his matches with Giant Gonzalez. And after a commercial break, we go into the arena where, sure enough, the ministry has put Shamrock into a purple robe, and the brood are now tying him onto the Undertaker's symbol at the top of the ramp. Taker then emerges from backstage and walks over to the ministry, but then things take an interesting turn, and so let's pick it up from there. Symbol. Do we say? 
The Undertaker making fellow brood members manhandle Christian here. Apparently, Midian, Christian didn't impress the Undertaker down. earlier. Shamrock's trying to free himself. Look at this. Wait a minute. The brood now and the ministry fighting. The brood are disobeying the Undertaker. Edge and, and Gangrel fighting the ministry. And Shamrock's about to And there's Mankind. Mankind. He was assaulted by the ministry as well tonight. And he's back from the Warner Room. Well, the ministry's got their hands full now. Where's the Undertaker? The brood fighting the ministry. Shamrock. And Mankind fighting the ministry. The Acolytes. Fisher, a million. Oh, is that, there's the Undertaker. The Undertaker. Observing all this, he's the one that deserves the beating. The Undertaker, he deserves to be pounded on if somebody's man enough, and it could be Shamrock at Backlash. And what, where in the hell's the Undertaker going? The Undertaker's disappearing. The, the, the ministry fighting the brood. My God, it's chaos. Okay, so let's break down what just happened there. When The Undertaker emerged from backstage, he then proceeded to grab Christian by the throat and start choking him. He then ordered Gangrel and Edge to put Christian on a second Undertaker symbol, which was lying on the other side of the stage. Although, actually, as you heard in that clip, Taker actually messed up and said, quote, Put him on the cross. And here I was defending The Undertaker for all these months by saying that he never actually crucified his victims because it was a symbol and not a cross, but clearly he misled me. But anyway, instead of following The Undertaker's orders, Gangrel and Edge refused to tie down Christian and they began fighting with the other members of the ministry. While that was going on, Ken Shamrock managed to free himself from his restraints and he escaped the symbol and shortly after that, Mankind also emerged from backstage. The Brood, Mankind, and Shamrock then all started brawling with the Ministry as The Undertaker looked on from the side of the stage. And then, well, it appeared that things did not go according to plan, because smoke started to fill the area of the stage near where The Undertaker was standing, but clearly there wasn't enough smoke. As you heard in that clip, Jim Ross was putting over the fact that Taker was disappearing, which was clearly supposed to be the intended effect, but because there wasn't very much smoke, what everyone saw was Taker basically being lowered down under the stage while he stood on a platform. Presumably, it's the exact same platform the Brood usually enters from when they do their awesome Ring of Fire entrance. So yeah, I think they were planning on there being a shitload of smoke so that it would look like The Undertaker disappeared once it all cleared, but instead we got the not-so-magical image of Taker slowly being lowered under a stage. Yet again... One more thing that makes the Ministry of Darkness look rather silly. But I suppose the big picture here is that Gangrel, Edge, and Christian have apparently decided to break rank with the Ministry only about two and a half months after joining them. Personally, I think this makes the Ministry about 8,000 times weaker from an in-ring perspective, because Edge and Christian can actually put on good matches, but without the Brood in the group, that now leaves them with Taker, the Acolytes, Midian, and Viscera. So at this point, I'm really hoping that they stick to having the Ministry doing these wacky angles instead of trying to settle things in the ring, because... yikes. And so, after a commercial break, we go back into the arena for our main event, and it is for the WWF Tag Team Titles, 
Champions, X-Pac and Kane versus Challengers, Triple H and Test, who are accompanied by China. So early on in the match, we got an indication that despite holding the titles, Kane and X-Pac might not be on the same page yet. At one point, Kane was stomping the crap out of Test in the corner, where X-Pac was standing on the ring apron, and X-Pac repeatedly stuck out his hand to ask for the tag, but Kane completely ignored him. Eventually, X-Pac just touched Kane on the shoulder and tagged himself in, but clearly the tag team champions are not a fully functioning unit just yet. So once X-Pac tagged himself in, as you might expect, the much bigger Test and Triple H spent the majority of the match working him over. A simple formula, but very effective. Hunter and X-Pac even did that old standby spot where the heel puts the babyface into a headlock and the referee checks his hand three times. And surprisingly, even this Attitude Era crowd, which usually doesn't have much patience for rest holds, was actually into it, cheering on X-Pac to mount a comeback, so good stuff there. And mount a comeback he did, as Pac finally managed to tag Kane, and the Big Red Machine then proceeded to clean house. Kane clotheslined Hunter over the top rope, followed by X-Pac hitting Test with a Bronco Buster, and Test then also rolled out to the floor. And then, at this point we had a rather surprising and, frankly, confusing moment. So Triple H walked over to the fallen Test, and he then appeared to help him up, but then he rolled Test back into the ring instead. Hunter and China then started walking back up the ramp, leaving Test alone in the ring, where Kane nailed him with a tombstone. Kane made the cover, referee Earl Hebner made the count, and that was enough to secure the three count, giving the victory and the successful title retention to X-Pac and Kane. And after the match, Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler tried to speculate as to what Triple H was doing, with the King presciently saying that Hunter was, quote, asserting his newfound authority, to which I say, yes indeed, emphasis on authority. But honestly, this angle strikes me as a bit strange. So Triple H just joined the corporation two weeks ago, and he's already fighting with his own guys. Not to mention the fact that he just left the ringside area during a title match, essentially just giving up on winning some belts for the corporation. Doesn't seem to make much sense, but then again, who the fuck knows anymore when it comes to Vince Russo's booking. So from there, we then cut back to what The Rock refers to as the Rudy Pooh Bridge, where he's still waiting for Stone Cold Steve Austin to arrive. And wouldn't you know it, while he's standing there, The Rock's beeper goes off, and he sees the numbers 316 on it. And this is clearly a callback to the November 24th, 1997 episode of Raw, where Stone Cold did the exact same thing and then proceeded to beat Rock's ass. However, in this case, Rock appears to laugh it off, potentially at his own peril. And from there, we actually cut back into the arena, where a jean shorts-wearing Ken Shamrock is now heading to the ring. He grabs a mic and, well, yet again, we must be reminded that The Undertaker is a big old fake faker. You know, Undertaker, I've been running around here all night long trying to get a piece of you, and you keep slipping out the back door. Well, Mark, I'm standing in the ring right here tonight, and I know that you can hear me. So, Mark, why don't you bring yourself down here, bring yourself into the ring here, and you and me, man on man, let's end this thing right here, right now. 
Oh, and there's one more thing, Mark. It's about time you got brought down to reality. Well, uh-oh. Cam Robin may get his wish, King. I told you he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Nobody knows any more about reality than Ken Shamrock from the ultimate fighting world. What, what's going on here? I don't have a damn clue. He's waiting on the, the Undertaker to come out here. I, oh, oh, how is that? Where'd he come from? The Undertaker now. Hammer the win and Shamrock. I told you. Oh, oh, Shamrock reverses. Shamrock with a backlash of his own on the Dina. What's left of the ministry? The acolytes, Midian, and Viscera. They're going to try to dismantle Shamrock. He should have known better than to come out here alone. Shamrock has no fear. But my God, he, can't, he cannot overcome these, these odds. The Undertaker has too many followers, too many believers, JR. The brood, conspicuous by their absence from... The confrontation with the ministry earlier. Come on, beat him, beat him. Get him, get him, bro. Shamrock can't even defend himself. Enough is enough. Come on, Taker, that's enough. You're taking this whole damn thing too far. And here comes the corporation. Thank God. They're coming to help Shamrock. Get Shamrock out of there. Show a little unity, corporation. Or some empathy or compassion or something. Stand off here, King. Wow. Hey, what? Come on, Donald What? Shane McMahon having Shamrock punished. What? This is not right. This is the explanation that Shane McMahon talked to Shamrock about earlier. Oh, look, oh, look at that. Shane McMahon's a maestro conducting his corporate band. Triple H, that is repulsive. That kid is a, a, he's drunk with power. Okay, so what you heard there was Ken Shamrock calling out The Undertaker. And yes, once again, we had to be reminded not once, not twice, but three times that his real name is Mark, because, you know, this angle is real now, folks. His name may be Mark, but damn it, we fans certainly aren't Marks, right? Right? Uh. So anyway, the lights go out, and when they come back on, Mark, or sorry, I mean The Undertaker, is now in the ring with Shamrock. So just, just think about that for a moment. Mere seconds after Shamrock is telling us that Taker needs a lesson in reality, he magically teleports into the ring. I mean, talk about a contradictory message. What the fuck are we doing here, folks? Anyway, Taker and Shamrock brawl for a bit, with Shamrock eventually getting the better of him until the Acolytes, Midian, and Viscera head to the ring to provide him with some backup. They proceed to beat the crap out of Shamrock until, mercifully, Triple H and the Big Boss Man run down to ringside and pull Shamrock out of the ring. Initially, it looks like they're going to help their former friend, but no, Hunter and the Boss Man turn on him and start beating Shamrock's ass too. We then cut to the top of the ramp, where we can see Shane McMahon looking on and smiling as the former corporation member gets beaten down. There's a new sheriff in town, and it appears that he may be even more unforgiving than his father, if that's at all possible. Quite a start to the new Shane McMahon regime at Ken Shamrock's expense. 
However, we're not done with the show just yet, because we then cut to the quote-unquote Rudy Pooh Bridge, where The Rock is now apparently fishing while he waits for Stone Cold, so let's go ahead and pick things up from there. Well, hell, I guess according to The Rock's Rolex, it's taken a long time for that piece of trash to come. The Rock really couldn't have, so what he's going to do is go on and throw this Stone Cold... Ba- well, The Rock smells trash. Oh, well, look at this. Look what we got going on here. Biggest piece of Texas trailer park trash walking God's green earth. You want some pressure, Phil? Whatever it is, will you bring your candy out? Here we go. Here we go now. The piss fight is on. We're here outside. The Rock and the rest the rattlesnake. No, 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 no. 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 Get up, you piece of Go to hell. Oh. <laughs> Austin, you want your belt? Well, I'll tell you what. Here it is, and you take it to hell with you. So as you heard there, Stone Cold did indeed drive up to the bridge where he started brawling with The Rock. Interestingly, though, Rock manages to get the better of him by thumbing him in the eye, then amusingly hitting him with his fishing pole, and Rock then grabs Austin and pushes him over the side of the bridge. Initially, Stone Cold is hanging onto the side of the bridge, but Rock then flips him off and punches him in the face, which causes Stone Cold to fall about 20 feet from the bridge down into the river below. Or, well, more accurately, it causes a Stone Cold-esque dummy to fall into the river below, but you get the idea. Rock then picks up the Smoking Skull Belt and tosses that into the river too, and that is how we go off the air. And I have to say, I was really struck by how massively Stone Cold put The Rock over in this segment. I mean, just think about this. Rock calls out Austin, he's waiting for him at the bridge all night, he's talking trash while he waits for him, and then, when Stone Cold finally shows up, Rock just tosses him off the bridge in a matter of seconds. So basically, your heel challenger just completely punked out the top star in all of wrestling. If ever you had any doubts that Stone Cold really enjoyed working with The Rock... Now you know. He's not going to let just anyone get one over on him. And hey, clearly, he picked the right guy to work with in that regard. Great stuff all around. But anyway, we're not done just yet. So on that note, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seas back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been dug in. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they cluckin'. The WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap Last week, thanks to the fact that WCW completely revamped its entire product, they were able to make the ratings a little bit closer, while still losing to Raw 5.83 to 4.32. The good news is, this week, WCW actually slightly increased their rating again, this time up to a 4.36, but unfortunately for them, Raw skyrocketed all the way back up to a 6.25. Good lord. However, this week wasn't all bad for WCW. This episode of Nitro aired the night after Spring Stampede, which many viewed to actually be a very good show. In The Wrestling Observer, Dave Meltzer, who is very critical of WCW around this time to say the least, refers to Spring Stampede as 
the best pay-per-view of the year so far. Meltzer, in fact, singles out the opening Juventud Guerrera Blitzkrieg contest as being match of the year quality. Fun fact about Blitzkrieg, he makes such an impression on the readers of the Wrestling Observer that he ends up winning the fan vote for Rookie of the Year, despite the fact that he's actually retired by the end of 1999. Pretty amazing if you think about it. In April, he's putting on four-star matches and stealing the show, and by October, he quits wrestling forever. Unreal. Another match on the card, which I never realized had even happened, saw Goldberg defeat Kevin Nash in a rematch from Starcade 1998 when Nash ended Goldberg's streak. I mean, legitimately, I had no idea that Goldberg and Nash faced each other at this show, but I'm sure Nash probably considers them even now since he laid down for Goldberg four months later. Hey, now it's one-to-one. We're all square. No biggie. Christ. But the big story coming out of Spring Stampede was the main event, a four-corners match for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship, and it was absolutely stacked with talent. Champion Ric Flair versus Hulk Hogan versus Sting versus Diamond Dallas Page with Macho Man Randy Savage acting as the special guest referee. Although, granted, despite that star power, it probably didn't do much for WCW's reputation as a company where the veterans are always on top when you have a main event with five guys, including the referee, who are all at least 40 years old. Yikes. But anyway, with all of that top-level talent in the ring, the result of the match actually ended up taking quite a few people by surprise. We've got all the combatants rising back up now, and this match goes on. Flares back up incredibly. There it is! David Tutter by Page! One, two, three! Oh, we've got a new world champion, guys! And it's DDP! DDP, he earned it! He fought his power! They all did! It's history! Diamond Dallas Page is the heavyweight champion of the world! Say that again, Tony! Diamond Dallas Page is the heavyweight champion of the world! I can't believe it! The only one of the four competitors that went into the ring that has never worn the World's Heavyweight Championship the Diamond Dallas Page on Sunday, April the 11th, 1999 at Spring Stampede has made history. Yes, that's right. Diamond Dallas Page, the one guy in the match who had never won a world title, is the guy who gets the pinfall on Ric Flair, winning the WCW World Heavyweight Championship in the process. DDP, a guy who didn't start wrestling until he was 35 years old, overcame the odds, and made it to the top of the mountain at age 43. Pretty cool story. Unfortunately, though, at the time, the consensus opinion seemed to be that DDP's win was a case of too little too late. DDP was red-hot last summer and into the fall when he was main-eventing pay-per-views, including the awesome Halloween Havoc match against Goldberg, but let's just say that his momentum had cooled significantly in the months since then. By contrast, if you look at how the WWF handled Mick Foley's world title win, I think it was pretty obvious that they pulled the trigger at exactly the right time. Two massive underdog stories, but the WWF was smart enough to strike when the iron was hot, and perhaps that's a fitting testament as to why these two companies headed in the directions they did. Still, though, I'm glad DDP got to have his moment, because by most accounts, he's one of the greatest guys in wrestling, and he's still helping people out to this day with his DDP yoga, so good for him. As for Spring Stampede, it did roughly 255,000 pay-per-view buys, WCW's lowest buy rate since World War III in November. 
And if you think that sounds bad, the news gets even worse because, sadly, WCW will never have another pay-per-view top 250,000 buys after this one. Not good times ahead, folks. But anyway, getting into Nitro, here's what you could have been watching over on the TNT network on this night instead of Monday Night Raw. Rey Mysterio defeated Juventud Guerrera by disqualification to retain his cruiserweight title. Bam Bam Bigelow defeated Hugh Morris in a kendo stick match. El Dandy and La Parca versus the Master Blasters went to a no contest. And for the record, no, this is not the same Master Blasters team which Kevin Nash was a part of early in his career. In fact, the match goes to a no contest because Nash himself interrupts it, which I can't help but think had to be Big Sexy amusing himself. Kidman defeated Psychosis. Booker T defeated Rick Steiner to retain his world television title. Goldberg defeated Kenny Chaos. Sting defeated Ric Flair in a 14-and-a-half-minute match because, yeah, let's just give that one away on free TV with no build-up. And in your main event, new WCW world champion Diamond Dallas Page defeated Scott Steiner to retain his title. And that brings me to this week's excerpt from the book, The Death of WCW by R.D. Reynolds and Brian Alvarez. Remember how I said DDP won that Four Corners match and Hulk Hogan was one of the participants? Well, Hogan was actually taken out of the match early on when DDP put him in the ring post figure four leg lock, resulting in Hogan kayfabe injuring his knee. And here is what Reynolds and Alvarez write about that moment. Quote, Perhaps the biggest news coming out of the match was Hogan's fake knee injury. Hogan sold it to the point that he even used help to get into the hotel that night during a period where there weren't any fans around to see it. Most knew what was going on here. He realized he was getting stale on top, plus he saw WCW falling apart at the seams and didn't want to be seen as the guy on top during that period. End quote. Gotta hand it to Hogan, he was certainly good at reading the tea leaves, I'll give him that. And in fact, this is indeed the last time we see him on WCW television for three months. But clearly, once he returns in July, the ratings will skyrocket right back up to where they were before, right? Right? Uh huh. Well, on that note, let's take it to the raw synopsis. So, as has been a recurring theme lately, I think I'd give this episode of Raw a mild thumbs up, essentially because the good stuff mostly outweighed the bad. We had quite a bit of shuffling of the deck on this show. Shane McMahon has taken over leadership of the corporation. Vince McMahon is out, along with Patterson and Briscoe. Ken Shamrock leaves the corporation voluntarily out of loyalty to Vince, and the Brood also ends up leaving the Ministry. I feel like I need a goddamn scorecard to keep track of all this. Meanwhile, the hardcore title match and tag team title matches were fun, and the intercontinental title match was pretty lousy, but at least we got an entertaining Godfather promo out of it. And of course, The Rock throwing Stone Cold off a friggin' bridge is a classic moment, one which I still can't believe Austin agreed to, since he kinda looks like a bitch getting his ass beaten so easily. I mean, seriously, Rock talks trash all night and invites Stone Cold to join him on the bridge, and then he easily throws him into the river in a matter of seconds. I suppose that's a good way of putting someone over. I just cannot believe that Austin was cool with it. So yes, overall, I'll give this one a slight thumbs up. You could certainly do a lot worse, like, for example, watching that aforementioned episode of Raw from May 27, 2019, where they didn't have a match until 50 minutes into the show. That would be much worse. So yeah, very slight thumbs up here. And of course, before we bring things to a close, here are some notes from this week's edition of the Wrestling Observer. 
As mentioned in the last episode, the British Bulldog Davy Boy Smith is still hospitalized with a spinal infection, and at this point, it's believed that his career is over. Not only that, but Meltzer reports that Davy Boy has been told that his injuries may actually be life-threatening. And clearly, at a time like this, it would be nice if WCW would show some support for him, right? So you can probably guess what happens next, can't you? Yes, while he's clinging to life in a hospital bed, they invoke Davy Boy's 90-day injury clause, and they fire him via FedEx effective immediately. Holy shit. And remember, the only reason Davy Boy is in this situation in the first place is because he injured himself in a WCW ring when he landed on the Ultimate Warrior's hidden trapdoor. Thanks for giving your body to this company, Bulldog. You're fired. Christ, what a business. Moving on, Meltzer reports that TNN, the Nashville network, is looking to add wrestling to its television lineup. They initially considered starting up their own promotion, but they're meeting with ECW representatives this week, and that looks like the more likely route. Let's just say TNN certainly ends up making quite a big impact in the wrestling industry for sure, but that's a little bit further down the road. This week, Thunder did its lowest rating of all time, while WCW Saturday Night did its lowest rating in years. However, that didn't stop Eric Bischoff from holding a meeting where he apparently told everyone that he's incredibly excited about the new direction of WCW. Remember, they introduced their new logo intro video stage and all that other stuff last week. In fact, Bischoff is so excited about their new direction that he predicted that Nitro will soon put up a 7.0 rating. Remember, they just did a 4.36 this week, so that's a lot of optimism right there. It's also reported that due to the success of Sable's issue of Playboy, she has already been asked to do a second one, and let's just say that, well, by the time that one comes out, the WWF won't be nearly as eager to promote it. Stay tuned for that. Meltzer also reports that the WWF's two-hour pilot on UPN at the end of April will be called WWF SmackDown. Personally, I think it's a little bit hokey. I don't see any way that that title sticks. And finally, we had a debut of a brand new wrestler on this past week's episode of Sunday Night Heat. He ran into the ring to help out Darren Drozdov during his match with the Big Boss Man, so let's take a listen. Put, apparently put the friendship aside for business. And wait a minute, he's going after that. No, wait, wait a minute. What is this? Who's this? Somebody to the ring. Somebody just jumped in out of the crowd. And this guy is huge. He just ripped hey. boss man off the rope. Look at the strength of this guy. Who the hell is this? Where did he? Boss man went for the piercings again. Oh, and my goodness. Nowhere came this guy. He's got to be at least 350 pounds. And now him and Draws working in conjunction. And now here comes Test. Test from the corporation and draws in this. I don't know who this guy is. He ran in from the crowd. Obviously working together with draws and Test comes to help his corporate brethren, the boss man. He looks just as freaky as draws does. So as you probably guessed, this marks the debut of Matt Bloom, the man who we know today as Jason Albert, the current head trainer down in NXT. As you heard in that clip, he doesn't have a name yet when he runs out from the crowd and attacks the big boss man, but, well, they certainly give him a doozy of one very soon. I'm sure we'll touch on that in the coming weeks. But yes, this is the official WWF debut of Matt Bloom, and here he is, 20 years later, responsible for training the next generation of stars. Pretty cool stuff. And so, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. 
As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. Or shit, just leave us a five-star review on iTunes without writing anything, because that helps too. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will now leave you with a clip of Sable appearing on the first-ever episode of the television show Happy Hour. Now, truthfully, this episode actually aired after last week's episode of Raw, but I couldn't find any instances of WWF personalities appearing on other shows during the week this episode of Raw aired, so Happy Hour it is. Now, just for some context here, in the second part of the clip, Sable and her team of fellow quasi-celebrities are playing a game where a famous person's mouth is shown on the screen, and they have to figure out whose mouth it is. And as you'll hear, that leads to Happy Hour host Dweezil Zappa asking Sable a question which is, well, retroactively, rather unfortunate. I think you'll see what I mean. So enjoy that clip, and I will catch you next time. Baby. Yes. Did you think you were going to be doing a little singing when you came down here tonight? No, but there's no better place to do my singing debut. And I'm ready. Is everyone ready? Oh, yeah. Because you, you have a beautiful singing voice. You do. Oh, thank you. All right. You know what? We wanted to know if you were interested in participating in an unsanctioned fight. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Would you be yes. interested? I no, 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 no. Well, there's, there's an inquirer, somebody who has expressed interest in competing against you. Have you ever, heard of, have you ever heard of Gary Coleman? Yeah. <laughs> what you talking about, Willis? <laughs> Clearly you have. He has expressed some interest in, in a, a, well, a, a grunge death I, match. Well, yeah, that. he did say a cage death match, but we... I only like to fight people my own size. Oh, ah, you know... Gary, I'm so... Here's the last clue. Okay, Here's the last it. clue. We're, we're dealing with mouth, all right? We know it. Yeah, we already know. We don't you know, know it? Know it. You, you want to take a stab? Uh-huh. All right, who is it? Go Bill Cosby. Yeah. Very nice. Sable has come through. Very nice. Now, Sable, are you a personal friend of Bill Cosby's, Sable? Unbelievable. I'm sorry. Are you a personal friend of Bill Cosby's? No, but I, I think he's a great actor. I'm a fan of his. You've never enjoyed a smooth bowl of jello with smooth him? Smooth bowl of jello. <laughs> I heard some things. I heard some things.